Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come. Come in. And know that you are welcome. To what, you ask? Why, to the nook, of course. To Tales to Terrify, yes. You press the right button, Santoro, Lawrence P., and this is the night. Come in, come in, don't be shy. Grab a snack, a drink, warm or cold, as is your wont, and snuggle with a chum. You like classic ghost stories, by the way? If so, tonight is your night to moan. We've got a, Well, you'll hear. Before we do, I want to remind all our friends in England that today, April 19th, is the day that we former colonials celebrate the battles at Lexington and Concord, events that became the foundation of the American Rebellion. The day when we colonials cheated, hid behind trees and walls to do our shooting. There was an incident this past week in Boston, and I'm sure everybody in the world has heard about it now. Physically near to the events of April 19th, 1775, commenting on the marathon bombing is not within our purview here in the nook, but I couldn't speak of horror without reminding you, you are friends, that there are horrors abroad in the world, real monsters. On this date in 1995, one monster, Timothy McVeigh, out of some fuckheaded sense of patriotism, blew up a building and killed or wounded almost a thousand kids, women, men. At this time, it's not known who did the Boston bombings and why. 
whether it was domestic or foreign, terrorist or just whatever. But I wanted to pause tonight and let a moment pass through us as we consider evil, the real stuff. Tonight, our likely lads, Mike Allen and Shailen Hurlbert, are set to report on their most recent field trip into the dark and deadly ground of the cinema reboot mill. They've been to the Flickers and are here to tell of... Well, I'll let them tell. As they take us on another tour of the abattoir. Mike? Shailen? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and we are recording under the gun tonight so that we can deliver our diabolical host, Larry Santaro, a review of Evil Dead, the remake, in time enough for him to actually include it in this week's podcast. I've been promising you that you will hear from Shallon Hurlbert again, and by Jove, he is here with me. Say hi, Shallon. Hello, folks. <laughs> Before we get started, I just want to give you a little update. Shallon and I have both been very busy guys. In my case... Part of that busyness has been working on my new anthology, Clockwork Phoenix 4, which by the time you hear from me again will at least have been sent out to the Kickstarter backers who supported me and made it possible for me to put it together. If any of you are the backers and you're listening, thank you so much. I've also been working on my novel, The Blackfire Concerto, which has quite a bit of horror elements of its own. Not only are there flesh-eating ghouls, but there are evil sorcerers who dine on the flesh of ghouls. So there's these sort of meta layers of cannibalism. Trust me, <laughs> it was a lot of fun to write. And it's taken a little while for Shallon and I to coordinate being able to get together again, but we did manage to see Evil Dead last week. And we're going to tell you about it now. And Shallon, do you want to attempt a summary? Do you guys really need a summary of what Evil Dead is about? Well, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the original was, uh, was extremely basic in plot. Guys go to a cabin. Guys find evil book. Monster. Spirit takes over. People in cabin. Everybody dies. Yes, um, exactly. Pretty much. <laughs> um, and this, the remake follows pretty much the same plot with, uh, almost. W almost, with just a different survivor at the end. The original spawned the career of Bruce Campbell and was one of Sam Raimi's first huge cult hits. Well, and it was his first huge cult hit. It was. Yes. Yes. Which spawned Evil Dead 2, the remake slash sequel, yes. and then Army of Darkness. And I hear that they've already greenlit a sequel to the remake. 
And apparently there's also talk of a sequel to Army of Darkness. Yeah. So you'll have these parallel threads. It just it's very strange, but Hollywood just never really needs to make sense apparently. Right. <laughs> well it kind of it almost reminds me of the way that Douglas Adams did some of his work. Each time he produced the I wouldn't uh, have seen that one. Well yeah. That, well each time he produced uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as a book, a radio play, the television show, each time he would do the rewriting and he would change it just a little bit. So each one was its own version of the story. So That's true. depending on how you, you experienced it, you're going to get a different take. This, I sort of feel, falls into that in that if you watch the original movies, you'll get that slapstick, humorous, you know, real early 80s gore kind right. of a of film and I'm I if this first movie in the remake series is anything to go on you're going to get a much much more serious darker gorier gutsier kind of a movie it's amazing to think of a gorier version of evil dead although one thing that I constantly see people correcting the various reviewers out there in the world on is that the original evil dead is not that humorous there's some unintentional humor for sure, and there right. is some intentional right. humor, but really, the first Evil Dead I've always felt was meant to be just kind of a straightforward exploitation movie. Yeah, I think Bruce Campbell's uh, performance adds a lot of humor. Right. And I think that people who watch it in retrospect of seeing other things that Bruce Campbell's done tend to... to like layer their own sense of humor onto the film and especially jaded viewers who are used to more clean and and realistic special effects will go back and look at the Harryhausen style animated dead girl and maybe the snicker the, down their nose at the, it the claymation decay <laughs> right right the obvious rubber ankle with the the pencil that stabs right. it you know right. things like that where is in the 80s that stuff was pretty scary Certainly to audiences who hadn't been exposed to exactly. it before. But I think you're right. I mean, maybe we could talk a little bit, just a little bit about the significance of these films. I, personal significance. Sure. The first one that I actually saw was Evil Dead 2, which I, I didn't see the original, the very first film until a bit later on video. But I saw Evil Dead 2 in the theater. And of course, Evil Dead 2 is a laugh riot. It's very intense, it's very surreal, it is scary in parts, kind of, but, but it's, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's a turbo horror comedy. And I think it's that movie that kind of really established the, the reputation that Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi have today, I think in large part comes from that yeah, movie. Yeah. However, that movie has, as as you said, colored how everybody watches the first Evil Dead. Exactly. Now. Right. Especially, like, if you look at that Evil Dead 2, it was more like a horror movie with comedy elements. And then the next movie, Army of Darkness, it's was just a comedy, comedy movie with some horror. With some horror, horror right, right. It's, I think it's really easy to, to then retrograde, look back through the series and see Shop Smart. Shop S more. Right, exactly. <laughs> and layer that stuff into it. I mean, then there's some, I can't remember, I think it's from the first movie, some overdubbing stuff that ended up just being hilarious in post. Like, um, the part where Bruce Campbell, Ash, goes running towards the tool shed and to cover 
like the silence in the thing, they had Bruce Campbell come in later and overdub Tool Shed when he gets up and sees it. So, <laughs> so um, apparently people still go up to Bruce Campbell at conventions and ask him to say Tool Shed. Just so. Does he do it? Yes, yes, he does. He's <laughs> got a good sense of humor, apparently. That's, that's funny. Yeah, but, you know, in, in the original Evil Dead, Ash is not the sort of larger-than-life badass he transforms into in, in the sequel and in Army of Darkness. He's, no, he's, he's much of, more of a... He's, he's a little bit of a leaner. Yeah. He's more of an everyman, you know. He's yeah. up there trying to make time with his girl and his... Some... I can't remember if it's his sister or not, but... The artist character who's part of the infamous tree rape in the, the original, she's sort of... The, char- the character is his... It's his character's sister. Right. Yeah, and and she's sort of the foil to the whole two couples up in the woods thing. She's the fifth wheel. Right. And Unfortunately uh, for her. <laughs> right. And so, I don't know exactly where I was going with this, except to say that, like, as far as Ash's character goes... He's much more like tied to to his girlfriend and his sister and his friends and he's very affected by their deaths and I mean he goes and has that real weepy burial scene with his girlfriend after she's decapitated. You know, whereas in Evil Dead Two he was more like, uh, shit went down. <laughs> now I'm getting out the chainsaw, you know. Yep. That kind of thing. Yep. Well he's he's in Evil Dead Two I think he starts out as sort of the wuss. And yeah. then he transforms from the, I think the turning point is when he cuts his own hand off. Right. Like, Who's laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> it may be less that he becomes a badass and more that he loses his freaking mind. Right. But then you get to where he connects the chainsaw. And then. To his arms, like, yeah. groovy. Groovy. Which, there's a couple of references to this in the new Evil Dead, which I guess we're going to talk about at some point. Right, eventually. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I guess it's important to mention the originals, seeing as this is where the new one came from. Right. Um, you have to acknowledge the roots. Sure. My take on the new Evil Dead is that it did not shame the franchise. I don't think, right. I don't think it really added anything new to it, but it was undeniably an entertaining movie. Right. Well, if if you're into blood spraying with fire hose pressure, right, right, which of course that happened in the originals as well, so that's right. that's true <laughs> to the movies. <laughs> Although I, I kind of wish, I kind of wish we had seen the. You know, the Evil Dead 2 innovation where sometimes the blood was different colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. By the end of the movie, you're kind of looking at just a big muddy red screen. Right. Right, especially at the very end. Oh, yeah, it's it's raining blood and there's blood spurting from bodies. It's and there's raining. mud. And it's raining mud. And, and it's quite impressive yeah. in its gooey way. <laughs> and, and like you said, it doesn't, you said it didn't add much to the, the Evil Dead franchise. Except in one way, I think. Okay. And that is they fleshed out some of the mythology in the book. Like, before, the book was just like a, a, a evil book, and there was bad things in it, and you could accidentally right. bring the deadites out by conjuring it. Well, in this, they showed that there was a progression that happens throughout the book, and if they followed all the steps and all the people died in the right way, that this thing called the abomination would crawl out from the earth and somehow be the the big bad 
something that they never quite describe. And it right. culminates with a rain of blood that that portends the rising of the abomination. And That was an interesting, I don't know if I'd call it an innovation exactly, an interesting added element in that you were able to... Did I say to, innovation? Uh, I don't know that you did. <laughs> but I'm saying that I wouldn't right, right. call it that. No, it wasn't that innovative, not at all. It, it reminded me a little bit of 13 Ghosts. Right. In that you had this element of sort of the, the illustration of these horrible figures and they, right. and they connected in sometimes sort of clever ways to what you actually then saw happening, happening the on the screen. Yeah. 13 Ghosts, by the way, is an example of a movie where the concept is like a thousand times better than the actual movie, but the right. concept is really cool. But, but I gotta say, that's one of my secret uh, <laughs> loves is that movie. I watch it every year. I own it. It's I, I'm starting to get ashamed just talking about it. Uh-oh. Well, anyway, <laughs> let's let's get back to Evil Dead. Well, before you do that, I got to say the Cabin in the Woods, which yes. we've also talked about. Um, I came away from Evil Dead thinking that in a post Cabin in the Woods movie, any Cabin in the Woods movie with quotes around it will always have that stigma for people who've seen it. And so watching it, you could almost, like Mike kept saying during the movie, I can almost see the guys in the basement. You know, and- oh, oh, sure. There's there's a number of... Of course, let me rewind here. The Cabin in the Woods, the Joss Whedon uh, scripted movie from last year, uh, that is kind of a meta send-up of... Many, many different horror tropes, and an effective movie in its own right, right, really is rooted in Evil Dead. And I personally wondered how, after The Cabin in the Woods, someone could even consider remaking Evil Dead. And of course, the the answer to this is, you know, Hollywood does not really give a darn about, right. <laughs> you know, having having its tropes exploded. They'll, right. They'll just go right on with If them. Hollywood was worried about repetition, uh, <laughs> I, I could list a million movies off the top of my head and probably get booed out of the studio. But <laughs> the, As I was watching Evil Dead, the remake, you know, we start with the five characters and, you know, they all, even though they fleshed out the backgrounds of the human, you know, blood cushions a, right. a little bit. Uh, they still it, fell into some of those categories they, they that still, were in the yeah. cabin in the woods. Yeah, it, there was the virgin right. and the whore and the, the nerd, nerd and the and jock. jock. And the, what's the fifth one? Oh, that's a good question. The virgin? Well, yeah, the virgin. Well, remember, I think, I think the... Um, I think, didn't you have, like, a scholar and a clown? And maybe they kind of combined those. Yeah, things. maybe, yeah. So so we had an extra female character who was, I don't know, maybe not quite either. Right. right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I'm not sure if the girlfriend or the nurse would be, you know, the cannon fodder, I suppose, right. or the deadite fodder. I hate to, to be a little jumpy around, but I, I do right. have to say one more thing about the original Evil Dead. And the way this fits into the canon is that they almost sort of hint that, that like it might be after the events of the original Evil Dead because Ash's car is there and there are parts, there are like some vocal parts that are taken directly from Evil Dead 2, things like that. Right. That uh, could be left over from what happened before. 
Right. There, there's just the barest hint that maybe this is the same cabin many years later where all that stuff happened so long right. ago. But I gotta say, I do remember one thing. The thing that like made me, uh, well, made me proud of myself anyway. The tool shed's on the wrong side of the cabin. <laughs> the deadites moved it. I guess, uh, yeah. Um, well, what I have to say, going back to the cabin in the woods, is through the first half of this movie, you know, as Shallon said, I was just constantly thinking, because the characters just do one stupid thing after another, and I was just constantly thinking, oh, you know, it's the guys in the control room. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, this is the perfect, this is like the perfect setup. This is everything that the cabin in the woods was about. Right. Now, what actually finally made me stop thinking about the cabin in the woods was when the violence kicked in. Right. And it's almost, it's, it's interesting. It almost became a completely different movie in a way at that point because it became about let's demonstrate how far we can go in portraying the suffering of these pretty young people. Right, right. <laughs> and how, there, how far can you mortify the flesh before the audience just can't take it? Right. And interestingly enough, you know, and I don't know what this says about me, but once that happened, it became a very thrilling movie. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, it was really easy to criticize the film for the decisions the characters make up until the big bad starts happening. Especially, like... The biggest mistake I think they make in the whole movie. They go down into the basement, and the thing is filled with dead cats yes. wound in barbed wire hanging from the ceiling, and this, like, shotgun and axe next to this wrapped-up book in barbed wire and black plastic, and they go, oh, we'll just clean it up, instead of, dear God, let's call the cops, you know? Exactly. Well, that led to that led to many, many scenes later that may or may not have been intentionally hilarious. I wasn't yeah. sure. I, I have to say, the filmmakers did seem to have a handle on what they were doing, so I don't know if you remember this, but you know, they talk about cleaning up that room, and then right. later you see the surrogate Ash character come out with the garbage bag, and I just started yeah. laughing. And I had a feeling that was what they intended. Yeah. It's a bag of cats. <laughs> like, literally a bag of cats. <laughs> there are a bunch of little nods to the original, obviously, when you make a remake. And, and, and as a fan base like this, you know, you you got to give a little bit to the fans. So one thing I was looking for that they totally dropped the ball on, so they go down into the basement, and there's no The Hills Have Eyes poster. Oh, well, I didn't notice. I was looking for it. I mean, because Raimi said The Hills Have Eyes is one of the scariest movies he ever saw. He really liked it, thought it was an inspiration. So he put the poster well, was. in the original, in the, the basement of the original, as kind of a nod. Okay. And uh, so I was waiting for, like, you're, you're making a love song to the Evil Dead. There's a couple things in there that, like, a true Evil Dead fan is going to notice and see. And... That was one that I was really hoping there'd be. Well, maybe what they did instead, uh, as you and I were talking before we started recording, if you guys may recall, or gals, the original poster for The Evil Dead has a woman crawling out of the ground with a hand grabbing her throat, and there's no such scene in the actual movie. However, there is in this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was cool, too. I mean, they, they can't do everything, and that's probably just a personal thing for me, is I, 
I look for weird little details like that. I bet you most of the people out there who are big Evil Dead fans who are listening to this are going, Hills Have Eyes poster? What? Hills right. Have Eyes I, I never, I but, never remember noticing that. But then, you know, I, I get into the weird detailed minutia of stuff, and the only reason I really look for it is because of the meaning that Sam Raimi gave it in some of the interviews. Is That's why I liked it. Another weird thing about the original movies that, is neither here nor there, but if you watch it in the basement, sometimes Ash changes from right-handed to left-handed. That's because the basement wasn't big enough. So in order to extend the scenes, they would flip the camera so that it they could use a longer... They could make it look like a longer scene I by see. yeah, you know, flipping the direction. Oh, that's funny. It's probably worth mentioning that if you know... Not that there's that much to know, but if you know the plot of the original movie, this movie will have some surprises for you. It, right. it goes in a couple of different directions, and I think that's okay. I don't think I minded that at all. No. If it was a straight remake, I mean, you're looking at like the remake of Psycho that was shot for shot, brought nothing new, you know, said nothing new. Something that we also need to mention, of course, the most infamous single scene from the original Evil Dead is the tree rape scene. Right. And I don't know I don't know how else I don't know of any nice way to explain what that scene is. And that scene I guess that was a very eighties scene. It's it's very exploitive. Right. Right. And they do recreate it kind of in the new movie. Right. It leaves a little bit more to the imagination. Right. But, but it definitely insinuates enough. Yeah. And they made it weirder, too. Yeah. You can imagine that. <laughs> it was much more surreal. In the original, I felt like, yeah, those are trees attacking her. You know, in this one, it was like, what, what is going on? There's a ghost and some there's vines the, and... There's a ghost and some vines and something that could be a tongue. Or a snake vine braided mud leech thing. Right. What they definitely did, I think, and I have to assume that they set out to do it this way, is it doesn't feel anywhere near as exploitive. It's just gross. Which, in a way, fits with the rest of the movie, which has even more, which just gets grosser and grosser and grosser, basically, as you accelerate through it. If you're a fan of gore effects, oh my god, this is your movie. <laughs> it did such a good job, and most of them are practical effects. According to everything I've read, the, uh, Fede Alvarez, I think that's, I'm pronouncing Fede Alvarez. Yeah, decided to, to go almost completely with a uh, practical effects. So there are very few shots that are modified by CG. So I was really impressed when I saw that, and I was like, wow, that, that they're doing that on screen, you know? And, and yeah, and it works. It, it works. It definitely hits you in the gut multiple yeah. times. And even if you don't really like the characters very much, I mean, none of them are made very likable, and all of them, well, in fact, all of them, I think, except for maybe the girlfriend, right? you know, you're you're given reasons not to like them. And, right. and a lot of times this happens not long before they're punished in some really yeah. horrible way. So, I don't and know. And almost all of it is like pride, too, that gets them. Right. Like the nurse who thinks she can administer care to a, a, an addict recovering and, 
the school teacher who thinks he knows enough that he can read this evil book and everything will be okay. And the brother who thinks he knows best how to take care of the situation. And all of them just make all these very self-assured, satisfied decisions and none of them make the right one. So there's, so there's a bit of, this is something that is not really all that uncommon in horror movies or horror stories, although it's, it's not necessarily a trait of the best horror movies or horror stories. You know, the idea that this horror that is visited upon you is something that you have somehow earned. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there's definitely a thread of that going on in this movie, and I don't really remember it so much in the original. In the original, I... I mean, I don't remember how likable the characters were for the original, but they... they I hated Ash's best friend. Okay. That guy was just a turd. Well, <laughs> he did suffer a bit, as yeah, I recall, yeah. but he doesn't—he didn't suffer the way his analog character suffered in this movie. No, no. Oh my God! <laughs> you know, jeez. Although I—I I guess you can—I guess you can give Evil Dead a little bit of credit in that it's not just the women being tortured. The guys right. take quite a bit of a beating, too. <laughs> oh, no, no one ends that movie happy. No. Yeah. No. I guess my ultimate verdict would be, if you are curious about it, it is definitely worth seeing. But I don't know that I would recommend it as an introduction to the franchise. I don't know, no, what do you think? No, I, I think. Well, I think the franchise itself, the, the charm rests in the the original three. Right. You know, I think that people coming to this as their first step into Evil Dead will maybe have their expectations let down by seeing the original ones because. If you prefer this kind of movie with this clean of effects and the serious tone and stuff like that, if you go back and watch the, the originals, you'll see some pretty funny or hokey-seeming stuff. In oh, yeah. But um, if you're a fan of the originals and you like to see the story taken in maybe a new direction, somebody else reinterpreting it, which I could go on and on about the, the value of reinterpretation of, of old stories, it's worth a watch. Right. Although he doesn't go as far as he could. He definitely doesn't go as far as anything you see in the second Evil Dead movie. No. So I wonder, assuming they are going to make a sequel to this, if they will you know, let her rip, so to speak, know. in yeah. the second movie, or if it's going to be more of the same. I, I kind of hope they let her rip. Yeah, so time will tell. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, the other thing I've been thinking of is if they're going to try to keep this serious tone... How do you get an Evil Dead 2 out of the movie that they just made? Because the one of the... That's a good question. Yeah. One of the, the... I guess I like it for this, but one of the failings of the original Evil Dead 2 is that it's billed as a sequel, but it's really a remake. I right. mean, the same character shows up there with the same girlfriend and no recollection of what happened before. Right. And then the same stuff happens, and it's all brand new. So, to me... I don't know. I see. I see it as like this is probably the third or the second remake of Evil Dead. If you call Evil Dead Two the first, I remake. think that's a good way to put it. You know, so to be probably most accurate, the second remake of Evil Dead was taken very seriously, as seriously as you can take a very gory horror movie. Right, with a very cliched plot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is not going to go down as a classic of horror storytelling. I think. No, but. As a 
night's guilty or not so guilty entertainment, it will right. definitely fit the bill. <laughs> I, I'm definitely already looking forward to seeing it again because I, I want to. Because when I went, I was like in the Evil Dead mood. I was like, I'm going to look for every like callback, every little hint that you know, all the the Evil Dead stuff. And then I got out of it, and I was like, you know, I really didn't even pay attention to that movie as its own movie. And it it probably deserves at least that, especially seeing as Fede Alvarez has directed some short films. This is his first long form film, and knowing that now, I didn't know that going in. I'd really like to take another look at it and see what he did. I'd be interested in seeing what he does next. Right. And what right. what seeds might have been laid here. Right. <laughs> yeah. That that uh, that you know he can then make grow when he's not required to reproduce Sam Raimi's right. original exactly, idea. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I sort of hope though that that if they do continue uh, sequels, I hope that he gets a chance to do the next one because. I'd really like to see what he does if they take the reins off him. All right. Maybe he'll do the lapping moose head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that moose head gave me nightmares as a kid. Holy cow. I don't think it gave me nightmares, but I I think I identified with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before I, I give my final viewpoint here, I'll say one more thing. The original Evil Dead also has some really cool sound bites that you can find in some white zombie songs. And if you're if you're at all a fan of white zombie, there's a particular song And who isn't a fan of white zombie? Right. There's a particular song, I can't remember what it's called right now, um, but there's a line in it where um, it's repeated over and over again in the background. The hello lover. And that's um, from Evil Dead 2. Gotcha. The girlfriend's severed head falls into Ash's lap. He looks at it, says hello lover, then bites his hand. And that's where his hand goes bad. Right, right. So, so listen to your white zombie and watch your 1980s schlocky movies because you never know. By the way, the scene he just described, there is a tribute to it of sorts in the remake. There is. Yes. 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 Although it's, it's, it's definitely not as funny. <laughs> no, not even a little bit. So. Especially if you're grossed out by creatures in your body, which, oh my god, I can't even, oh. Oh, oh. And with that, we're going to call this to a close. But thank you for joining us. And until next time, we'll swallow your soul. Stay scared. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Shaylin. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I don't think I'm that diabolical, by the way. Not at all. Anyway, the best to you for your projects, the anthologies, the novels, et al., and thank you both for pushing the timeline to get your efforts to us for this week. I have never been a fan either of the original turbo horror comedy Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn as it's properly known, or even of the old original Evil Dead 1981. I like them well enough, but I guess I like the quirkier, fan-drenched, epic, evil-dead-whatever-number or Army of Darkness, as it's properly known. I do like all three for adding to the lore and to the personnel files of horror filmmaking. That was the Evil Dead franchise. The originals were, in their own way, fine efforts in the Army of Darkness. Well, it was fun and fine. No, oh, apropos of nothing, by the way, Ms. Cecilia Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, pulp author B.C. Bell and his wife, the always adorable Miss Dar Uris, a.k.a. Darlene Linderman, and I, watched My Name is Bruce this past weekend. I won't go into that silly little effort, produced and directed by Bruce Campbell himself, taking the sincere piss out of himself, but... Watching the special features on the disc showed me again why I'm glad there is a Bruce Campbell in fandom slash filmdom. He's a guy who works hard, who uses his celebrity for good, pouring all that fanish love back into the lowish budget world that spawned him and in which he seems pleased to swim. So I will probably watch the DVD or Blu-ray of Evil Dead, whatever the number this one is, when it comes out. It may even become part of the permanent collection and take its place in the now hideously overcrowded shelves in the science fiction, fantasy, horror section here. I am not overly fond of horror films that birth their emotional context in blood and gore, but uh, well, when the effects were... Perforce low budget, there was always a level of safety to watching them, and 
it gave the Enterprise an element of humor when you could see the rubber, note the tubes, see that a head was not being crushed for real, that the flying eyeball wasn't a real one. But in Remakeville, when the budgets get big, bigger, 17 million and shot in New Zealand, not in Tennessee, for $375,000, things get much more serious, I guess. And that is not always, to my thinking, a good thing. Well, if it works, I guess it works. We'll see. And Shailen, keep looking for the weird little details, the minutiae. They do give one a glimpse into the thinking of the people involved. I like that, too. So, as said, I haven't yet seen Evil Dead 2013, but any film that has in it a snake, vine, braided, mud, leech thing, well, I suppose I'll have to see it. Eventually. Just so you know, I'm an ancient music kind of guy, not 50s rockabilly, no, 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 no. No, see, for me, anything written after about 1850 is hopelessly barbaric. Well, Chicago has a classical music FM station, one of the few left in the country. WFMT, it's called. It's a commercial station, but their commercials are quite tony. All the spots are announcer read, and the products they hawk all seem to be hand-picked by the DAR. Anyway, FMT frequently does fundraising efforts. The current one, now in its third week, has reminded me that I hope you have considered making a one-time contribution to Tales to Terrify, or even thought of becoming a monthly subscriber. If you have... Thank you. If you have not, well, I have no idea what to say. We, and I mean the collective we, the programs of the District of Wonders, Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and us, can really use your fiscal help. So, please, please... We'll not do on-air auctions or go on a pledge drive, but, well, as I've said, without tales to terrify, I don't know what I'd do. Well, actually, I do, but you know what I mean. Ah, now, fiction. Our tale to terrify tonight is a classic piece by Algernon Blackwood, one of the most prolific writers of ghost tales in the English language. He was born in a place called Shooter's Hill, which then was part of Kent. Well, I suppose it's still part of Kent, but it's now been absorbed into southeast London. He went to Wellington College, moved to Canada, where he worked on a milk farm, operated a hotel, went to New York City, where he became a bartender, a model, a private secretary, businessman, violin teacher, and finally a reporter for the New York Times. He moved back to England in his late 30s and began writing stories of the supernatural. He was successful at it and wrote at least 10 original collections of short stories. It's kind of hard to tell because he never kept track of how many stories he actually wrote. And eventually he appeared on both radio and finally television to tell those stories. 
He also wrote 14 novels, several children's books, and a number of plays, most of which were produced but not published. If you are familiar with his work, you know that he was a lover of nature and the outdoors. And to satisfy his interest in the supernatural, he joined an organization called The Ghost Club, reading about which is alone worth the price of admission to Wikipedia. He never married, and according to his friends, he was a loner, but also cheerful company. I'll tell you more after we hear today's tale. It's a short but a sweet one, called... Well, I'll let our narrator tell you. The Woman's Ghost Story by Algernon Blackwood Yes, Prue said from her seat in the dark corner. I'll tell you an experience if you care to listen. And what's more, I'll tell it briefly, without trimmings. I mean, without unessentials. That's the thing storytellers never do, you know. She laughed. They drag in all the unessentials and leave their listeners to disentangle. But I'll give you just the essentials, and you can make of it what you please. But on one condition, that at the end you ask no questions, because I can't explain it and have no wish to. We agreed. We were all serious. After listening to a dozen prolix stories from people who merely wished to talk but had nothing to tell, we wanted essentials. In those days, she began feeling from the quality of our silence that we were with her. In those days, I was interested in psychic things and had arranged to sit up alone in a haunted house in the middle of London. It was a cheap and dingy lodging house in a mean street, unfurnished. I had already made a preliminary examination in daylight that afternoon, and the keys from the caretaker who lived next door were in my pocket. The story was a good one. Satisfied me, at any rate, that it was worth investigating. And I won't weary you with details as to the woman's murder and all the tiresome elaboration as to why the place was alive. Enough that it was. I was a good deal bored, therefore, to see a man whom I took to be the talkative old caretaker waiting for me on the steps when I went in at eleven p.m., for I had sufficiently explained that I wished to be there alone for the night. I wished to show you the room, he mumbled, and of course I couldn't exactly refuse, having tipped him for the temporary loan of a chair and table. Come in, then, and let's be quick, I said. We went in, he shuffling after me through the unlighted hall up to the first floor where the murder had taken place and I prepared myself to hear his inevitable account before turning him out with the half-crown his persistence had earned. After lighting the gas, I sat down in the armchair he had provided, a faded brown plush armchair, and turned for the first time to face him and get through with the performance as quickly as possible. And it was in that instant I got my first shock. The man was not the caretaker. It was not the old fool Carrie I had interviewed earlier in the day and made my plans with. My heart gave a horrid jump. Now, who are you, pray, I said. You're not Carrie, the man I arranged with this afternoon. Who are you? I felt uncomfortable, as you may imagine. I was a psychical researcher and a young woman of new tendencies, and proud of my liberty, but I did not care to find myself in an empty house with a stranger. Something of my confidence left me. 
Confidence with women you know is all humbug after a certain point. Or perhaps you don't know, for most of you are men. But anyhow, my pluck ebbed in a quick rush, and I felt afraid. Who are you? I repeated quickly and nervously. The fellow was well-dressed, youngish and good-looking, but with a face of great sadness. I myself was barely thirty. I am giving you essentials, or I would not mention it. Out of quite ordinary things comes this story. I think that's why it has value. No, he said. I'm the man who was frightened to death. His voice and his words ran through me like a knife, and I felt ready to drop. In my pocket was the book I had bought to make notes in. I felt the pencil sticking in the socket. I felt, too, the extra warm things I had put on to sit up in, as no bed or sofa was available. A hundred things dashed through my mind, foolishly and without sequence or meaning, as the way is when one is really frightened. Unessentials leaped up and puzzled me, and I thought of what the papers might say if it came out, and what my smart brother-in-law would think, and whether it would be told that I had cigarettes in my pocket and was a free thinker. The man who was frightened to death, I repeated aghast. That's me, he said stupidly. I stared at him just as you would have done, any one of you men now listening to me, and felt my life ebbing and flowing like a sort of hot fluid. You needn't laugh, that's how I felt. Small things, you know, touch the mind with great earnestness when terror is there, real terror. But I might have been at a middle-class tea party for all the ideas I had. They were so ordinary. But I thought you were the caretaker I tipped this afternoon to let me sleep here, I gasped. Did Carrie send you to meet me? No, he replied in a voice that touched my boots somehow. I am the man who was frightened to death. And what is more, I am frightened now. So am I, I managed to utter, speaking instinctively. I am simply terrified. Yes, he replied in that same odd voice that seemed to sound within me. But you are still in the flesh, and I... I'm not. I felt the need for vigorous self-assertion. I stood up in that empty, unfurnished room, digging the nails into my palms and clenching my teeth. I was determined to assert my individuality and my courage as a new woman and a free soul. You mean to say you are not in the flesh? I gasped. What in the world are you talking about? The silence of the night swallowed up my voice. For the first time I realized that darkness was over the city, that dust lay upon the stairs, that the floor above was untenanted and the floor below empty. I was alone in an unoccupied and haunted house, unprotected and a woman. I chilled. I heard the wind round the house and knew the stars were hidden. My thoughts rushed to policemen and omnibuses and everything that was useful and comforting. I suddenly realized what a fool I was to come to such a house alone. I was icily afraid. I thought the end of my life had come. I was not a fool to go in for psychical research when I had not the necessary nerve. Good God! I gasped. If you're not Carrie, the man I arranged with, who are you? I was really stiff with terror. The man moved slowly towards me across the empty room. I held out my arm to stop him, getting up out of my chair at the same moment, and he came to halt just opposite to me, a smile on his worn, sad face. I told you who I am, 
he repeated quietly with a sigh, looking at me with the saddest eyes I have ever seen. And I am frightened still. By this time I was convinced that I was entertaining either a rogue or a madman, and I cursed my stupidity in bringing the man in without having seen his face. My mind was quickly made up, and I knew what to do. Ghosts and psychic phenomena flew to the winds. If I angered the creature, my life might pay the price. I must humor him till I got to the door, and then race for the street. I stood bolt upright and faced him. We were about of a height, and I was a strong, athletic woman who played hockey in winter and climbed Alps in summer. My hand itched for a stick, but I had none. Now, of course I remember, I said with a sort of stiff smile that was very hard to force. Now I remember your case and the wonderful way you behaved. The man stared at me stupidly, turning his head to watch me as I backed more and more quickly to the door. But when his face broke into a smile, I could control myself no longer. I reached the door in a run and shot out onto the landing. Like a fool, I turned the wrong way and stumbled over the stairs leading to the next story. But it was too late to change. The man was after me, I was sure. Though no sound of footsteps came. And I dashed up the next flight, tearing my skirt and banging my ribs in the darkness, and rushed headlong into the first room I came to. Luckily the door stood ajar, and still more fortunate there was a key in the lock. In a second I had slammed the door, flung my whole weight against it, and turned the key. I was safe, but my heart was beating like a drum. A second later it seemed to stop altogether, for I saw that there was someone else in the room besides myself. A man's figure stood between me and the windows, where the street lamps gave just enough light to outline his shape against the glass. I'm a plucky woman, you know, for even then I didn't give up hope but I may tell you that I have never felt so vilely frightened in all my born days. I had locked myself in with him. The man leaned against the window, watching me where I lay in a collapsed heap upon the floor. So there were two men in the house with me, I reflected. Perhaps other rooms were occupied too. What could it all mean? But as I stared, something changed in the room, or in me, hard to say which, and I realized my mistake so that my fear which had so far been physical, at once altered its character and became psychical. I became afraid in my soul instead of in my heart, and I knew immediately who this man was. How in the world did you get up here? I stammered to him across the empty room, amazement momentarily stemming my fear. Now let me tell you, he began in that odd faraway voice of his that went down my spine like a knife. I'm in different space for one thing and you'd find me in any room you went into. Or, according to your way of measuring, I'm all over the house. Space is a bodily condition, but I am out of the body and am not affected by space. It's my condition that keeps me here. I want something to change my condition for me, for then I could get away. What I want is sympathy, or really more than sympathy. I want affection. I want love. While he was speaking, I gathered myself slowly upon my feet. I wanted to scream and cry and laugh all at once, but I only succeeded in sighing, for my emotion was exhausted and a numbness was coming over me. I felt for the matches in my pocket and made a movement towards the gas jet. I should be much happier if you didn't light the gas, he said at once, for the vibrations of your light hurt me a good deal. You need not be afraid that I shall injure you. 
I can't touch your body to begin with, for there is a great gulf fixed, you know. And really, this half-light suits me best. Now, let me continue what I was trying to say before. You know, so many people have come to this house to see me, and most of them have seen me, and one and all have been terrified. If only, oh, if only someone would not be terrified, but kind and loving to me. Then, you see, I might be able to change my condition and get away. His voice was so sad that I felt tears start somewhere at the back of my eyes, but fear kept all else in check, and I stood shaking and cold as I listened to him. Who are you, then? Of course Carrie didn't send you, I know now, I managed to utter. My thoughts scattered dreadfully, and I could think of nothing to say. I was afraid of a stroke. I know nothing about Carrie or who he is, continued the man quietly. And the name my body had I have forgotten, thank God. But I am the man who was frightened to death in this house ten years ago, and I have been frightened ever since, and am frightened still, for the succession of cruel and curious people who come to this house to see the ghost, and thus keep alive its atmosphere of terror only helps to render my condition worse. If only someone would be kind to me, laugh, speak gently and rationally with me, cry if they like, pity, comfort, soothe me. Anything but come here in curiosity and tremble as you are now doing in that corner. Now, madam, won't you take pity on me? His voice rose to a dreadful cry. Won't you step out into the middle of the room and try to love me a little? A horrible laughter came gurgling up in my throat as I heard him, but the sense of pity was stronger than the laughter, and I found myself actually leaving the support of the wall and approaching the centre of the floor. By God, he cried at once, straightening up against the window. You have done a kind act. That's the first attempt at sympathy that has been shown me since I died, and I feel better already. In life, you know, I was a misanthrope. Everything went wrong with me, and I came to hate my fellow men so much that I couldn't bear to see them even. Of course, like begets like, and this hate was returned. Finally, I suffered from horrible delusions, and my room became haunted with demons that laughed and grimaced, and one night I ran into a whole cluster of them near the bed, and the fright stopped my heart and killed me. It's hate and remorse as much as terror that clogs me so thickly and keeps me here. If only someone could feel pity and sympathy, and perhaps a little love for me, I could get away and be happy. When you came this afternoon to see over the house, I watched you, and a little hope came to me for the first time. I saw you had courage, originality, resource, love. If only I could touch your heart without frightening you, I knew I could perhaps tap that love you have stored up in your being there, and thus borrow the wings for my escape. Now I must confess my heart began to ache a little, as fear left me and the man's words sank their sad meaning into me. Still, the whole affair was so incredible, and so touched with unholy quality, and the story of a woman's murder I had come to investigate had so obviously nothing to do with this thing that I felt myself in a kind of wild dream that seemed likely to stop at any moment, 
and leave me somewhere in bed after a nightmare. Moreover, his words possessed me to such an extent that I found it impossible to reflect upon anything else at all, or to consider adequately any ways or means of action or escape. I moved a little nearer to him in the gloom, horribly frightened, of course, but with the beginnings of a strange determination in my heart. You women, he continued, his voice plainly thrilling at my approach. You wonderful women to whom life often brings no opportunity of spending your great love. Oh, if only you could know how many of us simply yearn for it. It would save our souls. If but you knew. You might find the chance that you now have, but if you only spent your love freely without definite object, just letting it flow openly for all who need, you would reach hundreds and thousands of souls like me and release us. Oh, madam, I ask you again to feel with me, to be kind and gentle, and if you can, to love me a little. My heart did leap within me, and this time the tears did come, for I could not restrain them. I laughed, too, for the way he called me madam sounded so odd, here in this empty room at midnight in a London street. But my laughter stopped dead and merged in a flood of weeping when I saw how my change of feeling affected him. He had left his place by the window and was kneeling on the floor at my feet. His hands stretched out towards me in the first signs of a kind of glory about his head. Put your arms round me and kiss me for the love of God, he cried. Kiss me, oh, kiss me, and I shall be freed. You have done so much already. Now do this. I stuck there, hesitating, shaking, my determination on the verge of action yet not quite able to compass it, but the terror had almost gone. Forget that I'm a man and you're a woman, he continued in the most beseeching voice I ever heard. Forget that I'm a ghost, and come out boldly and press me to you with a great kiss, and let your love flow into me. Forget yourself just for one minute and do a brave thing. Oh, love me, love me, love me, and I shall be free. The words or the deep force they somehow released in the center of my being stirred me profoundly, and an emotion infinitely greater than fear surged up over me and carried me with it across the edge of action. Without hesitation, I took two steps forward towards him where he knelt and held out my arms. Pity and love were in my heart at that moment. Genuine pity, I swear, and genuine love. I forgot myself and my little tremblings in a great desire to help another soul. I love you, poor, aching, unhappy thing. I love you, I cried through hot tears. And I am not the least bit afraid in the world. The man uttered a curious sound, like laughter yet not laughter, and turned his face up to me. The light from the street below fell on it, but there was another light too shining all round it that seemed to come from the eyes and skin. He rose to his feet and met me, and in that second I folded him to my breast and kissed him full on the lips again and again. All our pipes had gone out, and not even a skirt rustled in that dark studio, as the storyteller paused a moment to steady her voice and put her hand softly up to her eyes before going on again. Now what can I say? And how can I describe to you, all you sceptical men sitting there with pipes in your mouths, 
the amazing sensation I experienced of holding an intangible, impalpable thing so closely to my heart that it touched my body with equal pressure all the way down and then melted away somewhere into my very being, for it was like seizing a rush of cool wind and feeling a touch of burning fire the moment it had struck its swift blow and passed on. A series of shocks ran all over and all through me. A momentary ecstasy of flaming sweetness and wonder thrilled down into me. My heart gave another great leap, and then I was alone. The room was empty. I turned on the gas and struck a match to prove it. All fear had left me and something was singing round me in the air and in my heart like the joy of a spring morning in youth. Not all the devils or shadows or hauntings in the world could then have caused me a single tremor. I unlocked the door and went all over the dark house, even into kitchen and cellar and up among the ghostly attics. But the house was empty. Something had left it. I lingered a short hour, analyzing, thinking, wondering. You can guess what and how, perhaps, but I won't detail, for I promised only essentials, remember? And then went out to sleep the remainder of the night in my own flat, locking the door behind me upon a house no longer haunted. But my uncle Sir Henry, the owner of the house, required an account of my adventure, and of course I was in duty bound to give him some kind of a true story. Before I could begin, however, he held up his hand to stop me. First, he said, I wish to tell you a little deception I ventured to practice on you. So many people have been to that house and seen the ghost that I came to think the story acted on their imaginations, and I wish to make a better test. So I invented for their benefit another story, with the idea that if you did see anything, I could be sure it was not due merely to an excited imagination. Then what you told me about a woman having been murdered and all that was not the true story of the haunting. It was not. The true story is that a cousin of mine went mad in that house and killed himself in a fit of morbid terror following upon years of miserable hypochondriasis. It is his figure that investigators see. That explains, then, I gasped. Explains what? I thought of that poor, struggling soul, longing all these years for escape and determined to keep my story for the present to myself. Explains, I mean, why I did not see the ghost of the murdered woman, I concluded. Precisely, said Sir Henry. And why, if you had seen anything, it would have had value, inasmuch as it could not have been caused by the imagination working upon a story you already knew. It has been pointed out that Blackwood's life parallels his work more neatly than perhaps that of any other writer of ghost tales. His central characters do tend to be optimistic but lonely people, like Blackwood, and they tend to be, as was he, a combination of outdoorsman and mystic. Wait till we hear his touchstone tale, The Wendigo, which we shall sometime soon. 
when he wasn't, as someone has said, steeping himself in occultism, Rosicrucianism, and Buddhism, he was likely to be skiing or mountain climbing. Blackwood, along with his contemporary Arthur Machen, was a member of one of the factions of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, another Wikipedia-worthy organization. Have a look. His two best-known stories are The Wendigo, as I mentioned before, and The Willows, which we also intend to have read to us here in the nook sometime soon. Yum. The Woman's Ghost Story was narrated for us tonight by Ms. Nicole Doolin. Back in show number 57, Nicole read Chris Mallory's I Know What They Are to great effect. Nicole is a producer, writer, voice actor, and narrator whom I first encountered on LibriVox, and Neo-like I said, Whoa. Nicole writes poetry, fiction, scripts, and some of her work has been published and performed. She is also an actor who has done voiceover work in a variety of media, and has produced her own collection of classic narrations available on her website, NicoleDoolin.com. That's N-I-K-O-L-L-E-D-O-O-L-I-N.com, at which you will find more terrifying and, well, not-so-terrifying tales by the likes of Edgar Allan Poe, Henry James, Jane Austen, Oscar Wilde, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and more. And that, well, you know, will be that. I would have you be up... You know the rest. Be upstanding, up and doing, etc. It's not a night for levity. And I must remember that this show will exist in archives for a long time. Of course, the events of the week will resonate forever. So, have a good walk home. Enjoy the night. Breathe deep. Stay in the light. Avoid shadows, especially if they move. Go home. Hug your cat, your dog, your beloved of whatever species, and have a truly pleasant dream. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And there are many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.